Chronicles of Leadership, Chapter 22 The Enemy Within John Keane Discovering the identity of ER gives me renewed confidence that I am close to unlocking an important secret. However, the short-term and urgent always threatens the long-term. I have had a surprising contact from Harry Antonacropolis. He was a colleague of mine when we both worked at Meniscus. I know he was working on a hash-hash project exploring nanotechnology, an approach for producing microscale chemical processes. He is searching for proof of concept for a novel way of synthesizing the top secret drugs of the organization. Now he was initiating a rat-a-tat of tax messages, me fumbling on my little mobile, Harry returning my messages at lightning speed. I had to guess at some of his approximations. FTF was face-to-face, I decided. He really seemed worried. Can we catch up? I would like to talk. FTF and ASAP. Me. Yes, let's talk FTF and ASP if you want. What about? Can't explain. Sometime this week would be good. I could come over any day to the university. How about tomorrow, at my office? No, better for me to find you. At the university? Repeat, better for me to find you at some time. Okay, you find me when you're ready. Something is serious brewing at Meniscus. Harry made direct contact with me the next evening, and in a peculiar way. To paraphrase the great novelist Snoopy, it was a dark and drizzly night. The bypass was heavy with traffic. The homebound motorists competing with walking and cycling students were defying the principles of road safety, knowing these only apply to mere mortals. I was leaving campus, walking towards my rooms on the outskirts of town, wishing I'd used the car. A cyclist was approaching from behind, intent on overtaking while maintaining his racing line. I was forced to step out into the road. It was Harry. Keep walking and go into the church, he said. I'll join you there as soon as I can. We were nearing the ancient parish church, which had managed to survive the construction of the bypass. Harry, weaving around pedestrians, wobbled ahead. Although the dark stone of the exterior of the church had been remained unspoiled, its porch and interior had been functionally modernised. I went inside. It was on the chilly side of cool and had minimum lighting. Since college days, my visits to places of worship have been restricted to weddings and funerals of assorted forms. My religious apathy was not for want of parental guidance. I settled in a pew close to the door. After a few minutes, I heard the door behind me open. Harry? As I turned, it closed again. I continued to wait for Harry. Another five minutes passed, which felt like twenty-five. I was deciding whether to lead when a figure, part concealed in a student top, advanced without speaking and slid into the pew behind me. It was Harry. He dispensed with niceties, speaking in an urgent whisper. Someone was following you on foot from the campus. It could have been a student. But I cycled past. Whoever it was waited outside the church for a while after he saw you go in. He was about to come in after you when a car pulled up and he got in and the car drove off. This was worse than I thought. Harry seemed in a state of panic, whether delusional or not. 
How do you know that the person you saw was deliberately following me? I suspect that my messages are being intercepted and assume that for all our precautions, both of us would be under surveillance. I tried to shake off any tale from Meniscus, and I watched you make your way off campus. There was certainly someone waiting close to the main entrance and following you. And then I assumed the car was driven by a partner and they decided there was no meeting taking place. Well, what happened? Why do you believe we are both being followed? I've been caught up with the people who killed Tuscothic. Harry was nervous. He was murdered because he was in their way. Harry told me his story, repeatedly swerving around to check the doors behind us. When you left the company, I was seen as one of the coming names. Then I did something stupid. I thought I was just helping another scientist. We've all done it. A few weeks later, I met Dr. Siskothic. We make a mid. We were both making a weekend shopping trip at the superstore. We walked together, pushing our trolleys. Then he said he wanted to talk to me about something important. I guessed he had found out what I'd been doing. I wondered why he had not waited until Monday to call me into the office. I was spooked. He said he knew that I'd been carried out work in the labs that were not part of my remit. I admitted it was true. I started to explain it was only a way of speeding up a procedure that had not been carried out and it would be invaluable to help the project producing a result. Tuscothic asked if I'd been approached in that way before. I said I hadn't. He made it clear I had totally underestimated the seriousness of what I was doing. He said that scientists like me were being dragged into projects in the way that could cause incalculable damage to the company. Interrupted. Would those people involved have included Kingston Roberts, I asked. I don't know, Harry replied. I wondered that when I heard about his death. I didn't know him or even which group he was in. With my discussion with Dr. Tiscothic. I was mainly thinking about what happened to me. He had said nothing would happen as long as I agreed to what he was going to propose. First, I was not to mention our discussion to anyone. Then if I was approached as similar favours, I should agree to the request. Only this time, I was to let him know in advance what was going on. He said he believed there were serious criminal activities being carried out which he intended to stop. Of course, I agreed. That ended the meeting. It was the last time we spoke together. A few weeks later, there was the explosion and then the nightclub stabbing, which you think was part of the larger game which Chachasek was trying to clear up. Harry shook his head. I haven't any hard evidence. I just think Kingston's death came at a convenient time. For anyone wanting him out of the way, maybe he'd become too much of a threat. I could see that if Harry became involved any further, he too would quickly become a liability. Listen, Harry, here's what we can do. I will discuss this with people I trust. Meanwhile, you must go back to Meniscus and act as if nothing has changed. Just behave pretty much as Triscothic suggested. If you're approached by anyone asking you to help them, agree and then get back to me. I'd thought of a way of doing this securely. There's a poetry society that meets at the Globe here, I said, just down the road. Kingston Roberts was one of its members who came over from Meniscus. We can use that as a way of communicating and meeting up. It's run by a colleague of mine, a Dr. Scrivener from the university. A message from you saying you will attend a future meeting of the society will tell me there have been more developments and you want to meet again. He was not convinced, 
but reluctantly conceded that he couldn't think of any better course of action. Then he wanted us to leave separately. I thought of one further question as he eased himself out of the wooden pew. Who is the scientist who had asked for your help? Might I know him? Oh, of course you know him. He looked a bit embarrassed. It's, um, well, it's Julian Kinder. I know you didn't always see eye to eye with him. Before I could press him any more, he had slipped out of the door. I immediately contacted Susie Yup. The enemy in all this is indeed Julian Kinder, I told her. This could be the step towards propelling me to journalistic fame and fortune, she said. On the other hand, I'll never get this story past my editor, and for once I would agree with you. Harry's story is so slight it wouldn't pass the Wikipedia test. I agreed. You need two substantiated accounts to get an entry in Wikipedia. Our evidence against Julian amounted to a jokey remark made to Susie up by Boris, a far from reliable witness, and now Harry's near hysterical claims. We need a lot more evidence before we can accuse Julian of being guilty of anything far being arrogant and pushy. I nodded. The Vice-Chancellor was not necessarily open in her dealings with us. I was sure she operated on a need-to-know basis from her time as a police officer. Susie Yup. I don't, I really don't understand John Kane. He has a wild story about meniscus and this infant genius Harry working there. Harry seems quite a, like a few other members of our chess club, bright but with no real grasp of reality. John Kane has always been unusual in his approach to dealing with everyday realities, particularly if they involve people, mechanical artefacts from cars to bottle openers, but he has an unswerving belief in the power of rationality to solve all of life's problems. He told me once he always wanted to be a scientist. His work at Meniscus was a kind of all-consuming hobby that he was being paid to carry out. But that's another thing I don't understand. Why did he leave? It's something about what he believes the economist Keynes it on. Was it the Keynesian conundrum? His relationship with me has become even more of a conundrum since he left Meniscus. John Keane Harry has left me wondering if I have an enemy inside the university connected with Meniscus. The most obvious candidate is Snee. He has never concealed the low esteem in which he holds my work. He would like to see me gone. His behaviour could be straightforward university politics. In his view... I am research inactive, a teacher drone to be tolerated for protecting the valuable time of proper researchers in his department. Then this brush, my office neighbour. He is surviving on the reputation of a textbook he co-authored when he was a promising young academic. He may be simulating the role of a departmental drunk, or more likely he is the departmental drunk but he seems remarkably well informed about what's going on. He predicted our first meeting I would be hired by Dr. Beamer. He is more cynical and willfully mischievous than his snee, more inclined to disagree with any views expressed in one-to-one -one discussion. He is silent in larger gatherings, preferring to express himself later, his rejection of any consensus reached. Brush needs enemies to sustain his bitterness, but like snee, He's a most unlikely candidate to be concealing his part in a criminal operation. 
So, discounting Snee and Brush, I have begun thinking of less obvious candidates as my possible hidden enemy within the university. I turn my thoughts towards someone I think of as a friend. I have no reason to think otherwise, but now there's a connection between him and Kingston Roberts and his poetry society, which in some way is also connected with Dando and his student and his animal rights activity, and therefore another link to meniscus. In listing all possible suspects, I realise I admitted Montegabima, the man who brought me to the university at the first place. To be sure, he's fought my corner whenever I face renewal of contracts, for example. But nevertheless, as much as he's helped me, I have to admit that sometimes he's contributed to the position I find myself in the first place. Within days, my suspicions about Montague Burton were re-aroused. The door to Beamer's office was slightly ajar when I was coming into my office. I decided to seize the chance to put some questions to him. I could see that he was in deep conversation with his secretary. She is loyal to a degree which frustrates the rest of us. I'll come back later, I said hastily. In doing so, I collided with the lurching figure of Brush, who must have been in his own office, seeing my move, and decided to join me in confronting our director. We retreated into his office. Bad timing, that, Brush said. Strange, though, he always closes the door when Alice is with him, engaged in a bit of serious afternoon conversation. She seemed upset, I said. So she did. It's starting all right. He fumbled for a cigarette. What's starting? Meltdown. Alice has just learned something very unpleasant from Beamer. We'll be the next to hear. He broke off. Here she comes. Alice hurried past, still far from appearing as her customary dignified self. Go ahead then, Brush said. You were first. Let's hear what Beamer's got to say. I'll wait here. Beamer was busy selecting documents from his filing cabinet and cramming them into his briefcase. Not good news, Keen. There's one of the regular pointless changes in the university life known as a reorganisation. I've escaped them ever since I arrived, but not this one. We're going to be swallowed up. The Vice-Chancellor has finally given way to the Machiavellian efforts of the dreadful Snee. He's found a way of juggling the numbers for the research excellence exercise. Alice guessed what is happening. I was on the point of making it known unofficially to everyone. It's the uncertainty about funding from meniscus continuing now that poor Dr. Discothic is no longer supporting us. And of course the dreadful Snee is able to argue in favour of his people juggling with the research excellence figures. He slammed shut his briefcase and scurried from the beehive. A few weeks later the inevitable news came out. He's leaving the university. He's rejected a formal leaving dinner and has only reluctantly agreed to an informal presentation. What happened there was most peculiar. The meeting was held in the Beehive small conference room. There were no more than a dozen staff present. Brush and I were the only researchers. The Dean was unable to attend. The personnel officer read out a message from the Dean conveying his apologies. Unsurprisingly, Dr. Beamer was very subdued himself. I've decided to make a complete break, he said. I've left means of communication with one or two of you. 
but if you haven't heard from me already, you won't be able to contact me in future. And then before anyone else could move, he seized the small gift wrap package and the envelope attached to it, containing his card with our signatures and best wishes, and walked out of the room without making eye contact with anyone. Nobody followed him. I returned to my own office. There was no sign of Beamer in his room. I checked my email for any message from him. Nothing. I sent him a message. Best wishes for your future career. Sorry we couldn't speak this afternoon. Maybe we can catch up later. An out-of-office reply pinged back immediately. Dr. Beamer is no longer at the university and cannot be contacted via this site or through the dean's office. It seems as if the future of our little group lies in the vicious hands of Professor Snee, Dr. Beamer's greatest enemy.